Hello, and welcome to episode 10 of the Downlink Podcast, brought to you by the University of Georgia's Small Satellite Research Laboratory. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about Earth's potential new moon. We're going to be talking about the new discoveries with the EM drive from NASA. And we're going to be talking about the second detection of gravitational waves. I'm Graham Grable. I'm a mechanical engineer here at the lab. I'm Megan LaCour. I'm a mechanical member. I'm Caleb Adams. I'm the undergraduate leader here. I'm Helena Bales. I am on the software team. I'm Adam King. I'm on the software and flight team. I'm Kwa, the chief engineer. So just like last week, uh, we had a new member, Ryan from Georgia Tech, on the team joining us for the summer. And this week, we also have another team member from Oregon, Helena Bales. Uh, Helena, do you want to introduce yourself a bit? Yeah, so I'm a junior at Oregon State University, and I just got done with my classes for spring term, so now I'm here for the summer and part of fall uh, until my classes start again. But I'm on the software team, as we said before. Um, I interned at NASA last summer, and that's where I met Caleb and started joining the Spacey Projects. So I'm really happy to be here and still jet-lagged. Very cool. I believe you have some news about Earth's new moon. Well, not really a new moon, but Right. So it's been it's been orbiting Earth for about 100 years, uh, but has only been observed uh, in April of this year in the observatory in Hawaii. So it's not truly in an orbit around Earth. It's in a solar orbit, but is close enough to Earth that it is being affected by Earth's gravitational pull. Um, so what it does is it moves ahead of Earth and then gets pulled back behind, going closer to the sun, and then trails behind Earth and then is pulled forward again farther away from the sun. Uh, so it, it has a pretty wobbly-looking orbit, which is also caused by it being on an, a tilted axis. The it's, way I understood yeah. it from some of the diagrams was it's in an elliptic, a very elliptical orbit around the sun that just so happened to place it near Earth at the right time about 100 mm-hmm. years ago, I guess. Yeah, that, and, that brought it also in an elliptical orbit around Earth. Right. And so, it, well, it's still falling around the sun, but mm-hmm. the Earth keeps giving it gravity assists around the Earth, essentially. Yeah, or and gravity so, assists or, like, pulling it back, I guess. Yeah. Because from, yeah. from the diagrams, it looks like it's doing both. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. Currently, pretty crazy. the only name that we have for it is HO3. So I think we need a much better name. That's not very endearing. I like my moons to be endearing. I want to name it Minmus. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be good. Just uh, like KSP. So size and distance-wise, it is about okay, 120 feet or 40 meters across and is about 9 million miles from Earth. So it's not something that we can see just by looking up. Which explains why we didn't see it for the past Well, we can't years. see it by looking up. You just need a very good telescope. Well, okay, yes. I meant <laughs> with your eyes. With the naked eye, yeah. Yeah. So I'm surprised that things like this haven't happened before, you know, with other asteroids becoming trapped in Earth's gravity well or larger objects becoming part of our little Earth system here. I'm surprised that we don't actually have more moons or other objects. Well, what exactly classifies a moon? Well, Caleb, uh, I just Googled what a moon is, and according to Google and the definition that's on there, um, it says a moon is a natural satellite of any planet. So I guess you could kind of classify this as a moon. Um, I think it's 
I think its orbit is around the sun, though, right? Mm-hmm. Right, so maybe that doesn't classify it as a moon. Well, not of Earth. Because it's orbiting around the sun, what would it be classified? I don't know for sure. Um, it can't be a planet because it hasn't cleared its orbit, um, which is good because we're in its orbit. Uh, <laughs> but so, so we know that it's not a planet. It's not our moon. So that just about leaves asteroid, which is what we've been calling it, um, which would make it an asteroid or our near-Earth companion. I love near-Earth companion. It does sound very friendly. <laughs> It'd be fun to send a CubeSat mission out to explore this asteroid. Yeah, let's go check it out. Maybe we could use it for fuel. Let's bring a spear. Spear it. Spear the asteroid. Bring it back. Yeah, and bring yeah. it back, and then we can poke it. <laughs> With a big stick. I always thought it'd be nice to basically build an international space station on an asteroid as you're using the asteroid for, for fuel. That's the premise of, well, it's part of the premise of the book Seven Eves by Neil Stevenson, where they have a giant asteroid attached to the International Space Station in order to protect it from space debris. It's pretty cool. That does sound pretty cool. Good space book. Yeah, that sounds like a good book. You guys all should check it out. I'm, I'm going to have to go see if I can find it at the library. Uh, Megan, I think you have some news about the uh, new discoveries about the EM drive. Yeah, so if in case you guys aren't already aware, so there's this guy, a British scientist back in 1999 named uh, Roger Shawyer, um, who theorized that you could uh, use uh, electromagnetic waves uh, to propel a spacecraft. Um, and by it creates thrust by bouncing microwaves back and forth within a metal cavity to trigger motion. And so NASA has been trying out these designs for I don't know how long. And it seems to work, but people have been freaking out because they don't know why it works. Uh, according to Newton's third law of motion, um, nothing is being expelled from you know this, this cavity. So m- momentum should be conserved and the, the ship should not move forward. But that's not what they've been seeing. So... A couple, a few physicists recently released a paper um, proposing that the reason it does work is because uh, photons within this cavity will uh, pair up. Uh, photons of opposite wavelength will pair up and cancel each other out, uh, thereby exiting the, this cavity. And I believe some of the calculations that I saw mean, oh, well, in terms of this drive and how it could basically revolutionize tr- space travel... Some of the calculations I saw mentioned that they that this could take us to Mars in 90 days. Yeah, they, they're supposed to accelerate crazy fast. Um, and we could get to the nearest uh, solar system like within 100 years, I think. So if it's accelerating really fast, how much does that hurt? Like how many Gs of acceleration are we getting in this? I assume that they were trying to be reasonable with that, assuming humans would, would be involved in terms of I guess at a certain point when your engines do get that good, uh, your limiting factor is no longer like your engine. It's can the humans withstand it? Right. So now we need like better car seats. <laughs> and I also think a part of that is is that your acceleration, it may be small, but you're able to accelerate at that rate for a very long period of time. So that's why you're able to get a mission to Mars in about 90 days. Hmm, that's true. Instead of just doing a few like small burns like in a home and transfer or something, you would just do a constant burn the entire way. Yeah, exactly. Sense. You mentioned that it's pushing electromagnetic fields out of the back of the spacecraft to propel it forward, right? It's, bounce- it's bouncing the electromagnetic um, waves within like this metal cavity. Okay. but And I believe the metal is- cavity is grooved on the inside to some sort of harmonic frequency or some 
I mean, it's probably well, no harmonic. What is the exhaust some sort of, frequency. of the engine? You know, you have to have exhaust for it to move forward. So what is it? So I think this paper was trying to prove that, uh, propose that these photons, um, out-of-phase photons would pair up. And because they're out-of-phase, they would cancel each other out. And once they're canceled uh, out, they can then, they're no longer going to interact electromagnetically with the, this metal chamber that they're in. So then they leave, I suppose. So it's expelling energy out. Very cool. Can we detect uh, what type the- of power are they using for this? Is I'm- it like electricity or? Yeah, I think it's basically anything that can produce electricity on spacecraft. So okay. things like solar panels or you can use an RTG. Uh, yeah, you could use an RTG. So like some sort of like um, nuclear reactor, something like that. Yeah, so you could use uh, anything really produces electricity to get this EM drive working on the spacecraft. It'd be interesting to see if, uh, if this technology could be miniaturized or if it's already small enough to be used on a CubeSat or like on a 6U CubeSat to get uh, some really futuristic propulsion systems on those small satellites. Yeah, they could really help with something like the Starshot project. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, it is. I think their current plan is to actually have large light sails, and those will deploy and basically uh, uh, be attached to small chipsets and laser-based or earth based lasers would point towards the sky and propel those light sails at very high speeds, um, a considerable fraction of the speed of light towards Alpha Centauri. So even uh, if you could integrate an EM drive into some of those systems, that could even help out with getting to Alpha Centauri faster. It's really cool that this propulsion method is separate from fuel type because it seems like rockets are pretty specifically designed to each fuel combination that they use so the fact that this just uses electricity means that as the technology to produce electricity changes it that method can stay the same yeah i think we're seeing uh, an emerging technology of, of moving away from chemical based rocketry and rocket engines into something a little bit more in the electric side so We've had ion engines for a while, and even we think of those as being electric-based, and they really are, but a lot of it is still using actual chemicals to ionize, like xenon gas, and using that. So I think the Dawn spacecraft actually used an ion engine to actually get to Ceres, and so that's one of the major spacecraft that's been using ion propulsion. So that's, that's another version of like an electric propulsion. So I think that going that way, you sort of have infinite fuel, in a way, you can really expand your mission priorities. Yeah, I think this EM drive is so cool because for e- even for like xenon engines, um, you so at some point you you lose fuel, you run out of fuel. But for this EM drive, you never run out of fuel as as long as you have a a feed of electricity going in. Wouldn't it also make these spacecraft a lot more efficient since you don't have to carry around um, all this weight that would be ne- necessary if you had to use chemical. Uh, propellant fuel that's right i think that's why it's why more and more missions are moving towards something like like ion propulsion or a form of electric propulsion because you don't have those inefficiencies found with have carrying around an empty tank so recently there was a really good uh technology demonstration by the lisa pathfinder mission which is somewhat similar to the uh ligo experiment well, actually, it's, it's based on the LIGO experiment that occurred here um, on planet Earth with the detection of uh, gravitational waves. And now, 
uh, the Lisa Pathfinder mission seeks to uh, kind of show how bi- we could build a larger space-based gravitational uh, wave detector. The trick to building um, this space-based uh, laser system is actually to have multiple satellites beam lasers at each other. And these lasers um, are actually, the, the thing that shoots the laser is inside a small capsule on the inside of the satellite that is in a perfect state of free fall. And what the LISA Pathfinder mission was able to demonstrate was that they could build a machine that on the inside has a small laser component that can perfectly aim a laser while that small component is in free fall and the satellite is adjusting around that component to make sure that it maintains its perfect free fall. Because in order to have, uh, in order to detect gravitational waves, um, you have to have incredibly precise lasers. And so essentially you have a triangle of lasers where they're all pointing at each other kilometers apart and um, they're shooting lasers at each other and forming this triangle as one small um, area of the satellites in perfect free fall it's, uh, connected, if you will, to the other that's also in perfect free fall and vice versa. So you may be asking yourself, like, how can something in space or something inside of a satellite in space be in perfect free fall? And so the way I kind of like to think of it is like if you have a cardboard box and let's say you just put a small item inside. If you quickly uh, drop the box, you're not going to feel that object touching any of the walls. You're not going to feel it touch the bottom of the box. You're not even going to feel it touch the top of the box unless you move it really fast. And when you do that, that object inside is actually essentially in free fall. And what if you could do that for essentially an infinite amount of time? What if you could keep moving the box down at the same rate as the object inside is moving in order to make sure the object inside isn't touching any of the walls? So that's basically what the laser inside and what the satellite is doing. Yeah, and the unique part about this actually is that um, while that's easy enough to do with one, which is what Lisa Pathfinder did, um, it gets very, very complicated when you have multiple. So you essentially have a constellation. It's not a, I mean, three might not constitute as a constellation of satellites, but it certainly is a configuration of satellites that all have to be in similar free fall. And um, they also will have to boost their orbits back up after they've um, uh, degraded. And they need to make sure that they're boosting at the same rates and that they adjust back into similar positions to maintain the next state of freefall that they do have to do for the, for, uh, whatever phase of the experiment they're in. And they're going to have to do that multiple times over the life cycle of the actual, uh, space-based gravitational wave detector. Now, earlier, I think you mentioned LIGO and how it, it's played a role into this LISA mission. Um, I think recently LIGO found a second set of gravitational waves, and we actually have a recording of what two black holes sound like colliding with each other, so we'll play that now. So that's the sound of two black holes colliding together. I don't that's think, crazy. I know. I don't think I've ever heard anything like that. I mean, you'll probably... I mean, you have maybe in a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a it's a really thing. amazing sound, especially since like we probably won't hear sound from those entities, like from those black holes ever again. That's once in a lifetime, really. I do believe that that uh, sound is actually slowed down, so it happens even faster than the recording. Um, wow. Yes, shows. and, I th- it, and the, it's not like actual sound from the black holes, but it's been sort of upscaled for us to be able to hear what it would sound like. 
I thought it actually did go into the to the. Um, yeah, I thought they just measured the the actual wave and <clears throat> and put it in the form that we can listen to. Like there's yeah. no sound. Well, I thought it was actually uh, something you could physically hear. It just happens so quickly that we don't hear it. Well, because if we're measuring gravitational waves, you are going to compress the air. Um, however, it would be so like almost like non noticeable that we wouldn't hear it. So in other news, we have some members of the team going to SATFAB, part of the University Nano Satellite Program. It's basically sort of where we get to learn how to make satellites and CubeSats and learn how to do it well. So we have uh, Caleb Adams, we have Hollis Neal, Quan No, and Megan LaCour uh, going out to New Mexico next week. So have fun, you guys. Yes, that should be pretty fun. This will be our second time going to New Mexico for the... University NanoSat program. They are that it is a great program. It teaches us a lot, and they're always super supportive and helpful um, in the process. They also give us funding to build satellites. So we'll figure out what we can tell you about the SatFab conference or the SatFab workshop. I mean, and let you know some of the cool things we've learned when we come back. Well, I think that's all we have for you guys this week. Um, it's a little bit shorter this time around, but we couldn't resist talking about this new space news and talking about what all that could mean. So thank you for listening to episode 10 of The Downlink. Um, tune in next week, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes so you don't uh, miss an episode. Remember, our crowdfunder is still going, and we're still uh, looking for funds. And thank you for everyone who's donated. You can go to smallsat.uga.edu slash funder to take a look at some of our donation tiers so you could potentially get your name engraved on a satellite. So uh, thank you to everyone who's been donating, and I think that's it. Thank you. Bye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Downlink, brought to you by the University of Georgia Small Satellite Research Laboratory. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at UGA Small Sat Lab. Until next time, over and out.